today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Psilocybin, which is the active constituent in magic mushrooms, is really in the spotlight right now. Psilocybin is a constituent found in over 200 different species of fungi. So most of those species are mushrooms, but there are a couple that come to us from truffles, truffle species. And as it turns out, psilocybin has performed very well in clinical trials for treating things like depression. And when I say depression, I'm talking about major depressive disorder. I'm also talking about so-called treatment-resistant depression. So that's the kind of depression where regular pharmaceutical medicine didn't work, talk therapy didn't work, and the person was told, there's no real treatment for the kind of depression you have, right? So those real stubborn cases, we're seeing great response to that, including in people who have a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. For example, people who just got diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and now they have so much anxiety around what's going to happen to me? Am I going to die? Is my family going to be okay? The depression that comes with that. Huge shifts and improvements of quality of life for those individuals. Smoking cessation treatment for various addictions. Also, we see some wonderful results there. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I talk with expert psychedelic educator, Dr. Erica Zelfand, who is helping to pave the way on the therapeutic use of ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and LSD. It's not what you think. And we're definitely not talking raves and festivals. She talks a lot about their use for depression, anxiety, addiction, panic, and more. I can't wait for you to listen about this super emerging topic. Before we get started though, I do have to talk to you about an easy health habit that I use every single day, and that's AG1 by Athletic Greens. With one delicious scoop of AG1, I get 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to support my gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, you know, all the things. It also comes in these super convenient travel packs, which is so nice because I am often on the go. I love that you can use it if you eat keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free like me. And it contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. And to me, it tastes pretty good. I call it a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing I do every single day to take great care of myself, and you can too. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supportive vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash root cause. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash root cause to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This podcast is created by Rupa Health, the best and easiest place for practitioners to order, track, and manage all your labs in one convenient location for free. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Erica, oh my goodness, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Girl, I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you in this new setting too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I couldn't think of a better person when we were discussing topics and the topics of all things medicinal psychedelics came up. You were obviously the first person that came to mind, which I know in the world is a hot, spicy, sometimes controversial thing to talk about, but I'm here for it. And I think that people who are listening are going to get a lot of their questions answered and be really curious as well. So thanks for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And (laughs) I love this medicine. And as it turns out, it works. So I'm very happy to be sharing what I know about it. That's my first question. How did you give everyone a little bit of intro of like who you are? How did you get into this, your background? Because that will help. Yeah. So I'm trained as a primary care provider. I'm a naturopathic physician. And so actually you 
And I'm, as we were saying before that we hit record, I was your student once upon a time. So it's very sweet to be here. And when I went into medicine, I really went with this dream and this focus of doing women's reproductive health, which is how I ended up in so many of the courses that you were teaching. (laughs) And then as I graduated, I did a family practice residency. I did some extra postdoctorate work in pediatrics and I hung my shingle and said, okay, I'm a primary care doctor. Here I am. And I specialize in women's health. And then my practice got flooded with people of all ages who had depression and anxiety, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and other substances and Tourette's and obsessive compulsive disorder. And I realized, okay, wow, what I really need to be doing is focusing on nervous system support and mental health. And I was very blessed as a naturopathic physician licensed in Oregon that I had all of the pharmacology tools in my toolkit. So I had all of the SSRIs and the SNRIs and the other meds that I could prescribe to people. And I did. And I still do. And then I had all of the naturopathic things in my toolkit as well, homeopathy and nutrition. And aside from the actual tools in the toolkit, there was also the naturopathic philosophy of actually look at the person in front of you, assess what's going on with them and treat the real cause. And as you know, a lot of people with depression actually have hypothyroidism or a lot of women with anxiety, especially moms, they often just have low progesterone levels. And so being able to treat the whole person, I was able to have success in shifting the mental health picture of a lot of my patients, but there were some cases that I just couldn't crack. Something you should know about me is I'm an Aries and I... I'm stubborn. I am a stubborn cookie. God help you if you ever get in an argument with me. <laughs> so as I had these patients and I re- like there were just some cases I couldn't crack that nut. I was like a dog with a bone. I was like, I have to find, I have to figure this one out. And I realized that what was missing from mind-body medicine is the soul. That there was this other layer that I couldn't reach with the tools that I had available to me. And that was the layer of the soul. And as it turns out, that layer controls a heck of a lot for both physical and mental health. I realized I could touch it a little bit with homeopathy. And I did a wonderful training, New England School of Homeopathy with Paul Herskew, Amy Rothenberg. Big gratitude to them. As it turns out, I'm not that good of a homeopath because I'm not that patient. And then yada, 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 somehow found myself with a bunch of ayahuasca in my body. (laughs) (laughs) in somebody's living room. And it really, that night, it was like a flip got switched in my brain that it was like, A, have to understand how this medicine is working on me. I'm so fascinated by the science of this. And B, I think there's really something here that could be of benefit to me and could be of benefit to the people that I sit with every day in my practice. And so what started as a personal academic learning somehow turned into a career (laughs) where where now I do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of education. I try and educate both regular people and medical professionals on this medicine and say, hey, there might be something here. Why don't we take a look at this? I also travel internationally where laws are different, where I can work with more of these substances. So I actually am a psychedelic facilitator and I also train aspiring psychedelic facilitators. I have a course online called the Science of Psychedelics for healthcare providers. That one's CE, CME approved. And then I also work in Oregon with InnerTrek. We are the first in the country licensed psilocybin facilitation school. And our graduates are going to be the first licensed by a state above board legal psilocybin facilitators. So it's a really exciting time. I feel like I've been able to come out of the psychedelic closet, so to speak, (laughs) and really just share this very unique tool with people. And it's unique is a great word to describe it. You know, as you know, like most people, they probably hear the word psychedelic and think illegal, the 70s, that's what our grandparents did, or even our parents, depending on our age, maybe yourself have dabbled into it when you were younger. 
But for a lot of people, it's scary. It's shameful. I first heard about psychedelics. I was at a conference and a, one of the instructors or speakers was talking about working in the VA system, the veteran system. And he was saying that these soldiers who were coming in with severe reactive PTSD and using various, I believe it was ayahuasca that they were using. And he gave this really great analogy of how it was sort of wiping when you fall into depression or you have PTSD or you go right to a panic attack. He said it was like you like a track, like a track you couldn't get out of in your brain. No matter how hard you tried to derail the train on the track away from anxiety or panic, he said you couldn't. And they were doing, they were trialing, they gotten permission and were trialing. I believe it was ayahuasca, like I said. And he said all of a sudden the track went away and and the soldiers were coming out the other end going, I don't fall into panic anymore. Like my go-to reaction is not anxiety. And I thought, well, this is the coolest thing in the whole world. Why aren't we doing this with more people? And then another girlfriend of mine who suffers with a lot of, I would say control, maybe obsessive would be a good word. And her counselor recommended psilocybin, microdosing psilocybin. And she said, I started like super secret hush. I said, Carrie, I started microdosing psilocybin and I don't have that need for control. I don't have that feeling of obsessive thoughts anymore. And then obviously I was watching you, following your career, getting into it. And now, especially both of us in the state of Oregon, seeing the state with you a lot at the charge, really kind of leading the way. And now I'm so hopeful for people. So when people are listening that they, I understand that they may immediately go to, well, that's illegal or that's, we, that's drugs. We don't do that but it's really not. It is really not. And it's so therapeutic, as you were saying, depending however which way you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question you ask of why isn't this legal and why aren't more people talking about it? I think it's a very good question. And it's a very political question. The way in which the drug enforcement agency's schedule is laid out in terms of which medicines we can use and which medicines we can't has placed a lot of these substances on the DEA Schedule 1, meaning that according to the Drug Enforcement Agency, there's no approved use for these substances. And I think it's interesting that fentanyl, which we now know is probably the most addictive drug, which is responsible for more drug overdose deaths than any other substance, that's not a Schedule 1 substance. That's a substance that I can prescribe to a patient. Pull out my, has to be on a fancy um, watermarked prescription pad, but okay, I write a prescription and a patient can go get that. They can't do that for psilocybin at the federal level. Side note, they can't do that for cannabis either, which yeah. is a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> but, and then when we look at the way that drug research happens, drug research is very expensive. If you want to do good science, good science costs a lot of money. And when we look at who funds drug research, it's one of two parties. One, it's typically a pharmaceutical company, and they're trying to pump sometimes millions of dollars into research so that they can show their drug that they have a patent on does something, right? So they're not really going to be motivated to fund research on psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca because they can't make money off of those molecules, right? So that one's out. So then the other party that funds research is the government. The government is going to be very slow to fund research on substances that they have deemed have no medical use, that they have slapped mandatory minimum sentences on for the possession or sale of these substances, and that we currently, to this day, have people sitting in prison for using and or distributing these substances, right? So the government kind of has to admit to, oops, we messed up with this one before it's going to fund the research. So that doesn't leave a whole lot of options. So a lot of what we know about these substances now are thanks to individuals who are very courageous and sticking their necks out and also very generous in privately funding this research. So it's been tricky. It's like if you want to get something legalized, you have to have the data. Well, to have the data, you need to have the money, right? And now it seems like it took some while for the bicycle to click into the right gear, but now it's there and it's cruising up that hill and it's, and it's happening. And as it turns out, the data is really there. The data really supports this work. So speaking of the data, this episode is a 101 into psychedelics. So can you 
maybe walk through the top couple that people are going to hear about Yes, and what the data is showing. Like, how does it work? You mentioned LSD. I know immediately people in their head are freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, there's no way I would ever do LSD until you do read the literature and you see what's happening in the research. And so I think walking through some of those might be helpful for those who are listening. Absolutely. Yeah. And before I do, I just want to say some of these substances like LSD, they're not new. They've been around for a long time but the context of their use is different now. So it's a very different thing to take LSD at a music festival (laughs) where there's a big crowd of people and loud music, stand in line for a porta potty and very different experience than doing it maybe in a therapist's office with some soft music playing. These molecules do behave very differently depending on how they are administered. So in terms of kind of the most popular ones or like the greatest hits that we're seeing right now, psilocybin, which is the active constituent in magic mushrooms, is really in the spotlight right now. Psilocybin is a constituent found in over 200 different species of fungi. So most of those species are mushrooms, but there are a couple that come to us from truffles, truffle species. And as it turns out, psilocybin has performed very well in clinical trials for treating things like depression. And when I say depression... I'm talking about major depressive disorder. I'm also talking about so-called treatment-resistant depression. So that's the kind of depression where regular pharmaceutical medicine didn't work, talk therapy didn't work, and the person was told there's no real treatment for the kind of depression you have, right? So those real stubborn cases, we're seeing great response to that, including in people who have a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. For example, people who just got diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And now they have so much anxiety around what's going to happen to me. Am I going to die? Is my family going to be okay? The depression that comes with that huge shift and improvements of quality of life for those individuals. So smoking cessation, treatment for various addictions. Also, we see some wonderful results there. Psilocybin is a real nice one to do studies with. It's not as stigmatized as LSD. It works through much the same mechanism, but It is natural, which people tend to feel better about. And also it doesn't last as long as an LSD trip does. So if you're designing a study, you want your researchers to be able to go home after six hours and an (laughs) LSD trip can last up to 14 and everyone's like, okay, is it over yet? Can we go home? So LSD is coming. We're starting to see more research on it, but psilocybin has really led the way for the classic psychedelics. So there's that, psilocybin magic mushrooms. Also just another thing on psilocybin, no known lethal dose not physiologically addictive. I want to say there's no toxic dose. That's not true. To hit a toxic dose, you would need to eat about 28 boxes of psilocybin mushrooms. So for all intents and purposes, let's just say non-toxic. Okay. So that's psilocybin. That one's in the spotlight right now. It just got legalized in Oregon. Another popular one is, as you said earlier, ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is a psychedelic medicine that comes to us from the Amazon. It's actually a combination of two different plants that are brewed together. One of the plants contains a psychedelic tryptamine called DMT, dimethyltryptamine. You can smoke DMT. It's an intense high and it only lasts a few minutes. If you take DMT orally, there's an enzyme in the stomach called monoamine oxidase that breaks down the DMT and you don't get a trip off of it. So what brilliant people in the Amazon realized is that there are other plants in the jungle that have monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So if you brew those plants with the DMT-containing plants, you have a brew that can be taken orally that doesn't get broken down by the stomach, and that person can have not just seven minutes with the DMT, but hours in that medicine space. That one, as you said, we do see a lot of research in military contexts with ayahuasca, but it doesn't have to be. Ayahuasca is a very deep acting, a very shamanic medicine in how it works. And if you want to say which psychedelic is good for what, they're all kind of good for everything. It really depends on the person. And so sometimes when I'm talking to a client and they say, I want to do psychedelics, which one? Which one do you think is calling you? Just kind of, I know it's a little bit of a woo question, but it's like, which one do you just feel like, like if you thought about holding a puppy, (laughs) which one of these medicines (laughs) makes you feel that way? So yeah, ayahuasca is also what's called a purgative, meaning it induces vomiting or some kind of a purge. 
And some people, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to do that one. I don't want to throw up. Listen, nobody wants to throw up. But here's how that can be a very powerful thing is in the trip space, you might be able to identify a negative pattern in your life, a toxic belief system, energy maybe that you picked up from a parent or somebody else, maybe even some pain from your ancestors that you've been holding in your body. And I know this all sounds very out there. It makes a lot more sense if you're on on psychedelics. But you can take something, even like an attitude that you've been walking around with that has been sabotaging you and you realize, wait a minute, there's that thing, there's that thing. And you kind of boil it down and you condense it. You kind of get a sense of its margins and you're like, here's this thing I don't want anymore that isn't serving me, that is poisoning me in my life. Oh my gosh. And then you throw up and you get it out. Catharsis is not even the right word for how liberating that can be, right? Nobody particularly enjoys the process of the purge, right? (laughs) No. But oh my gosh, afterwards, it's a very physical way to embody a very ephemeral process. So as a side note, ayahuasca can also be used to treat parasitic infections, probably through that same mechanism, being very acidic. So there's that one. Another one that's very, very much popular in the literature right now that I can almost guarantee we are going to see legalized within the next few years at the federal level is MDMA, methylene dioxy, 3,4 methylene dioxy methamphetamine. You might have heard of this one under different aliases like Molly or ecstasy. Now, I just want to say, if you've taken Molly or ecstasy, there's a good chance you haven't actually taken MDMA. There are a lot of gross synthetic knockoff versions. MDMA is a synthetic molecule. It's derivative of sassafras, actually. And MDMA, some people say it's not a psychedelic. You can kind of argue that it is or it isn't because it doesn't make you trip in the classic sense. The walls don't melt and your visual field when your eyes are closed is more or less as it is in a normal state. But what's different on the MDMA experience is the shift in brain chemistry. It's a very loving molecule. It's a very heart-opening, trusting. I love myself. I trust my inner wisdom. I love the other people in my life who show up for me. It turns down this hypervigilance that a lot of us have when we have especially a history of trauma or some kind of wounding. And so when it comes to healing trauma or healing post-traumatic stress disorder, MDMA is the ace in the whole medicine for that one. Ayahuasca is helpful too, but ayahuasca is intense. MDMA is very gentle, right? There's no like trippy kind of altered visual field. It's not as shamanic. It's much more of an adjuvant to therapy. So typically to use MDMA in a therapeutic context, it's the client takes the medicine, they're with a therapist or two therapists typically, and they're there for five to eight hours. And so the material that that person really needs to reprocess and integrate when they're sober, this is the thing with PTSD. The brain with PTSD is a different brain than the brain of someone who doesn't have PTSD. You need to go back and reprocess some of the information that happened around the trauma. But when you have a PTSD brain, the minute you go to approach the trauma, all of the defenses go up, the nervous system goes on red flag alert, that person gets what's called deregulated, meaning they no longer feel safe, their heart rate goes up, they start panicking, and you can't proceed. And if you push through that can actually re-traumatize a person. You can make them worse. This is why PTSD is so hard to treat. And so what we see happening with MDMA is the exact opposite. So all of the ways in which the brain shifts into an abnormal pattern with PTSD, MDMA makes the brain shift in the total opposite direction. So for those five to eight hours, that person has not only a normal brain, but like a super healthy brain, a super processing trauma, healing, pain kind of a brain. And so that window can really be leveraged in the context of therapy to then go and do the work that is otherwise literally impossible for this brain to do. And so when we look at the studies on MDMA, it's two treatments or three treatments. And then it's not just, oh, this person's PTSD scores are better. It's, oh, this person is cured. This person no longer hits the diagnostic criteria for diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And I want to touch on what you had said because that's I, what I don't want people is to take away from this. I'll just go find Molly. Mm-hmm. Like I'll just, oh, I'm at a party. I heard that podcast. She said, I'll just do Molly and this will help my PTSD. It's therapeutic context, doing the work, counselors. This isn't Molly at a festival. It's not. Although that's a hill of fun too. Well, but- right. <laughs> In the context of healing, (laughs) healing PTSD. (laughs) Yeah, but very different, very different. And I've even had clients that when I've talked to them about this, they said like, oh, I've done MDMA before. I went to Burning Man or I went to a rave. And then they've actually gone and done their MDMA assisted therapy sessions. And they've come back and said, I can't believe that's the same drug. Like if you told me that was a totally different drug, I would have believed you. Like that was a totally different experience. So these molecules are very sensitive to the context in which they're used and administered. I want to talk about one more. I could talk all day long about psychedelics. I love it. I love it. There's one more that I think we do need. Maybe two more. I definitely want to mention ketamine though. Yeah, I was going to say, please talk about ketamine. Because ketamine is legal. It's the one that we can use now in this country because it is legal. So this is the one that when I'm in the United States, this is the one that I use with my patients. Ketamine's a really cool molecule. It's We've known about it since the 70s. It's actually an anesthesia drug. It's on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. It's used in the field. It like medics in the army carry it. It's used in pediatrics. So in kiddos, it's used in pets. It's used in surgery in the hospital. It's used for outpatient procedures, like a dental procedure. It is a versatile molecule with a very good safety profile that we know a lot about because it's been around for a long time. What happened over the decades was people with depression, when they would have surgery or some kind of anesthesia requiring procedure, a couple of things happened. One is they reported that they kind of had a psychedelic trip as they were coming out of it or coming into it. People were like, I don't know, maybe that's a near-death experience from your surgery. I don't know what to make of that. But enough people reported it. And the other thing that there were some people reporting was that if they had depression and then they had surgery, that for two weeks after the surgery, they didn't have depression. And then enough people were like, what did I get? What did I get in that anesthesia cocktail? There was something in that that changed me for a week, for two weeks. And then they backslid and they wanted to know what it was. So there were enough reports of this. So don't ever let your doctor gaslight you because you have valuable information, right? There were enough reports of this that in 1995, researcher by the name of Carlos Zarate started looking at what role could this molecule actually play on the brain in helping mood? As it turns out, quite a lot. So we now have a ton of research on ketamine, in particular for helping with mood disorders, depression, anxiety, OCD. Eating disorders are kind of OCD as well. A lot of data on ketamine for eating disorders. And ketamine works through totally different mechanisms than our classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, totally different mechanism than MDMA. It works through a few different channels, one of them affecting glutamate levels in the brain, the other one affecting a whole bunch of other pathways that have to do with your brain's ability to rewire itself, something called brain plasticity. And similar to MDMA, ketamine can help drop some of the guarding around tough topics. So subject matter that might be too painful or too shameful to talk about in therapy to really heal, ketamine can relax some of that protection around it so you can get to the thing. And something that I really love about ketamine is its versatility. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump where Bubba is talking about all the different ways to make shrimp. Like (laughs) that's ketamine. You can microdose it on a daily basis. You can take a low dose a couple times a week. You can do a medium dose in a therapy session. That's really cool. Then you can take a high dose, not so high that you lose consciousness and go into an anesthesia state, but a high enough dose that you actually have a psychedelic journey. And unlike psilocybin, which lasts four to eight hours, or LSD, which can last 10 to 14, a ketamine trip lasts one to two hours. So it's a much shorter window in that space. So if people are kind of freaked about spending all day in an alternative state of consciousness, right? It's almost like a mini ayahuasca journey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this one is ketamine is also lovely for pain as well. But we do need to be careful with ketamine. Interesting. It can be used to treat addiction. It can also be addictive. 
So sometimes with ketamine, less is more, or sometimes a big dose and then a break rather than taking it repeatedly. And actually the way that I learned about ketamine was I kept hearing about it at psychedelic conferences and events. And I was like, that's weird. I'm not, that sounds, I'm just whatever. But it was a patient who trusted me who said, I've been reading about ketamine for depression. I really wanted to try it. I'm not recommending anybody do what this woman did, just to be clear. (laughs) She talked to a few doctors. They told her she was crazy. They sent her away. She talked to some ketamine specialists who wanted to charge her $1,000 for the treatment. She didn't have $1,000. She bought a bag of ketamine on the street and snorted it in her living room. Oh. Yeah. Again, I really, really discourage everybody from doing this. And she got a huge amount of relief from depression, from her anxiety. She broke up with her on-again, off-again boyfriend of three years. She applied to graduate school, like made some really, really big shifts in her life. And so she came to me and she's like, if you don't give me a prescription for this, I'm buying another bag of ketamine and snorting. I was like, okay, okay, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll prescribe it. And I was like, but you have to let me write up your case. And she said, okay. (laughs) And so I've written up her case from a medical journal. Yeah, so, and that's a dirt cheap molecule that is legal. And so people can have their experiences now while we're waiting for the laws to change. And also, I I just want to say with psychedelics, there's a reason there are so many different medicines out there. So some patients hate ketamine. They love ayahuasca. Or some people don't like ayahuasca and they don't like LSD and MDMA is their molecule. So and this happens a lot when I talk to patients and consult with them and I'll say, you know, what do you think about maybe doing psilocybin? They go, well, I smoked cannabis a few times and God, that was horrible. I felt paranoid. Say, okay, that's a different medicine. Works in a totally different way, right? So I could yammer on all day long about all the different ones. I'm going to leave it at that and just say, <laughs> there are a lot of them out there. Yeah. And different medicines work for different people at different stages of their lives. Well, I think out of sheer curiosity, I know people are going to ask about LSD. So I think you'll have to finish on a little bit about LSD so we get that at least out there. Sure. So LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide 25 is the full name. This molecule is such a cool molecule. It was discovered by accident by a researcher in Switzerland who was trying to develop a new cardiovascular drug. He was playing around with different derivatives of a substance called ergot. 25th derivative, LSD-25. He Animal testing didn't really seem to do much. He put it on a back shelf. And then five years later, he was like, what about that molecule? And pulled it down off the shelf. And I just think that's such a very interesting moment in our human history. Like this researcher, Albert Hoffman, he was developing drugs day in and day out. What made him go, what about that one five years ago? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, like maybe this one just wanted to find us. and. So he experimented on himself. He had the first known acid trip in history and then realized, wow, this is a really potent molecule. does something totally different and I don't know what it can be used for. And then essentially Sandoz Pharmaceuticals gave anyone as much LSD as they wanted if they would report back their findings. They crowdsourced the studies. And so there's a lot of information about LSD. A lot of it, I'm sorry to say, is thanks to the US government because the US government spent over $4 million researching LSD. And that Dollar amount does not include their undocumented research that they did through the CIA's MKUltra program. They wanted to take LSD. They wanted to weaponize it. They wanted to see if they could use it for war. If we give this to the enemy, will it induce a schizophrenia-like state? If we give this to the enemy, will it be a truth serum and will they tell us all the enemy secrets? If we put this in the drinking water, can we mind control a population, right? And as it turns out, the answer to all of those questions is no. (laughs) No, LSD is not a schizophrenia or psychosis-like state. You can't mind control somebody with it. You can torture somebody with it if you don't have their consent and you put them in a stressful environment, but that's really any substance. But LSD, it's a different drug class than psilocybin, but it works in largely the same way, largely through serotonin receptors, allowing the brain, first of all, to have that just yummy serotonin, feel-good, happy mood state, but also in allowing the brain to communicate with itself more effectively. So we get, as you said at the top of the show, we get in these ruts with our thinking, right? We get really rigid in those ruts. And the older we get, the more we reinforce those ruts, right? And what LSD or psilocybin or ayahuasca, what these kind of classic psychedelics do 
is they disrupt the ruts. So if the ruts are like footprints in snow, the psychedelic state, it's like dumping a blizzard. You just have a fresh layer of snow and you get to decide, maybe we want to do this a different way now. It helps you get unstuck. Part of how it does that is it helps parts of the brain that don't normally communicate with one another to have conversations. Now that doesn't last, the drug wears off after however many hours, but while those conversations are happening, you get to have your aha moments. And those aha moments, you remember them, they stay with you. You can carry them forward in your life. And so that's why when we talk about psychedelic medicine, these medicines work. They are powerful medicines. And we're often talking about them within the context of psychedelic-assisted therapy. Because what we want to make sure happens is that after this drug wears off, you are able to mine all of the gold that you can from that experience, carry it forward into your life, and then you don't have to keep taking psychedelics, right? Then maybe, maybe it's one or two or three experiences and you're done for the rest of your life. Maybe it's one experience and that's it. Maybe that's all you need. Some people, they like to do a tune-up maybe once a year, but like that is very, very different than taking an antidepressant medication every day or of doing electric shock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy course, or it's really being able to weave it into your life, weave this experience into your life because the drug wears off. When, as somebody's listening to this and you've now absolutely piqued their interest, <laughs> now, right now people are tuning in, where are we in the United States with psychedelics? Like where would, somebody's like, I would like to try this. Ketamine is legal. But like, and I know there are ketamine clinics that are starting to become formed and or there are around. How does somebody go about learning more about this or asking their doctor about this or seeking a clinic that can help them with this as opposed to non-therapy at a festival, right. which is not what we're going for. Not in this therapeutic situation. Yeah, not what my patient did with the, her first ketamine experience. Please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Oh my God, please don't do that. Okay, so I'm going to plug a few resources here. Please do, yes. One, if you are going to do the thing I don't recommend doing, which is buying your own and just do it, going it on your own, test your drugs. Always, always test your drugs. So I'm going to plug two websites here. One is dancesafe.org. They sell drug testing kits. Now, what those kits do, they don't tell you exactly what's in your drugs. They tell you what's not in your drugs. For example, you can make sure there isn't fentanyl in what you're taking or something toxic or lethal. If you want to know exactly what you're taking, not just what's not in there, but what is every single thing in there, drugdata.org. You actually mail them a small amount of your drugs with some money. I think it's a hundred bucks. And they post it on their website, a photo and a, like a code number or name. And then through, they use uh, spectrometry. Legalization is important. Decriminalization is important. Okay, please don't do that. But if you're going to do that, here's how to be stupid safely. Okay, smarter ways to do it, safer ways to do it is to go with a trusted professional opportunity. So with ketamine, that means finding a licensed ketamine practitioner. If it's an anesthesiologist running a side hustle out of their office, and it's a cold room with no blankets and no music, you'll be safe, but you might not get as much out of that experience. So I actually have an article on my website on improving ketamine mileage, meaning if you can't find someone who's like, has more of a therapy office or living room kind of feel, and you have to go to what I call a ketamine mill, you can still get a lot out of that experience, but check out my article and I talk you through like, here are the things to pack. Here's a music playlist to listen to. Here's how to you know get the most out of it. So there's that. I also want to plug, I don't get any kickback or I have no affiliation, but just good websites is psychedelic.support has a wonderful directory of providers on there, as well as Third Wave. They have a directory as well. And so you can look and see who's in your area or if there isn't someone in your area who works on Zoom, who can coach you through the experience, who can talk to you, who can educate you on doing this in the way that's the most therapeutic and the safest for you. We're very lucky being in the state of Oregon that Oregon has passed a law that will take into effect in 2023, probably middle of the year, where psilocybin services will be legal in the state, meaning you can make an appointment at a licensed psilocybin service center, meet with a licensed facilitator, take the psilocybin on the premises 
with somebody supporting you through the experience and you don't go home until you're done with the experience. So it's not a buy mushrooms and (laughs) eat them in your car kind of a situation. It's a more controlled, supportive environment. So there's that. So that's coming down the pike. In the meantime, other ways to do this safely and legally, if you're on U.S. soil, if you're Native American, you are your own sovereign nation. So some of these laws don't apply. If you're not, then your options are you can enroll in a clinical trial. And there are many. Maps.org is a good website. For learning more about those. M-A-P-S, MAPS. Mm-hmm. Okay. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, M-A-P-S. And another option is certain states, unfortunately, Oregon's not one of them, but other states have a freedom of religion clause. So there are some psilocybin churches out there. So these are places of worship. We're using the word church. Sometimes they're Christian-based, sometimes they're non-denominational. But these are communities that use psilocybin as their religious sacrament that you can access that way. There's a lovely one in Kentucky called Sanctuary with a P. There are others as well. That's an option as well. Ditto for ayahuasca. There is the Santo Daime Church, D-A-I-M-E. They have religious freedom to use ayahuasca as their religious sacrament as well. So... If you have the funds to travel, psilocybin is legal in the Netherlands. It's legal in Jamaica. It's legal in Mexico if done in indigenous contexts. So Portugal has decriminalized all drugs as well. And now I know there's a difference between doing something where it's legal and doing something where it's safe. But as it turns out, the two often go hand in hand. So this is why, and this is where I do get political in saying, hey, How come the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, who lied about how addictive OxyContin is and contributed to thousands, tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, how come they got a slap on the wrist and a fine? While William Leonard Picard, who was manufacturing LSD, which has no lethal dose and isn't addictive, he got a double life sentence. Hey, U.S. government, what's up with that, right? Right, right. So when I went into medicine, I really didn't want to get into politics and... (laughs) (laughs) life had other plans here you are (laughs) here I am (laughs) so yeah and I actually just started a nonprofit. our website doesn't even exist yet but I'm just going to name it we're called right to heal and we specifically educate people and advocate for their right to heal because it is your right to heal and healing is always the right choice it's always the right choice to heal absolutely in your prediction if you had the oracle how soon do you see other states following suit like Oregon or even fully federal? I mean, are we talking 10 to 20 years? Are we talking similar to cannabis, how a few states went and then all of a sudden so many states went? Right. Well, the cannabis story is both a promising and a depressing one for me. It's still a schedule one substance at the federal level, right? What I hope will happen is that the entire DEA schedule gets revisited. In particular, every substance on Schedule 1, except for maybe heroin, probably shouldn't be on Schedule 1. And so actually a recent review by Matthew Johnson and a group of other researchers at Johns Hopkins, they recently did a review of psilocybin following the standards of the Controlled Substances Act, which is the act that made the Drug Enforcement Agency in their schedule. And they concluded that psilocybin should be no more strict than Schedule 3. So. I hope that we will see this shift at the federal level. Even if we do not, it will shift at the grassroots level. Oregon was the first state to not just decriminalize psilocybin, but actually to legalize it within certain contexts. The rest of the country is watching Oregon to see if we mess this up or not. (laughs) Hopefully we won't. No pressure, Oregon. Right. So already, I think we're going to see Washington go soon in the same direction. New York, I think, is going to go soon in the same direction. Colorado, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It might be a little patchy, but it'll happen. In terms of MDMA, I think that's actually the molecule that we're the most likely to see rescheduled the soonest. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, we'll see. They have approved something called the Expanded Access Program for MDMA, meaning they've approved a program that now certain individuals who have treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder can access MDMA outside of a clinical trial. Interesting. Yeah. 
It's only at a few sites in the country and it's only a very limited number of patients, but that's a really promising sign, right? Another promising sign is that for the first time since the war on drugs started, the US government has also funded one study on psilocybin. They awarded Johns Hopkins how many million? I think it was $4 million to study psilocybin in the context of helping people quit smoking. So now we have an NIH grant, we have the expanded access program. We also have a general cultural shift where more and more individuals are going, hey, that whole war on drugs, that didn't work so hot, did it? (laughs) It didn't work out so well. We have a fentanyl situation on our hands. We have a mental health crisis on our hands and we need, something needs to shift here. Big time. So thankfully, I'm not the only one being screechy about this. But Carrie, I do think we're going to see the laws change within the scope of our careers. I think these substances are going to find their place in medicine. And I know that changing laws is a slow and lumbering process. And I think it's going to happen. I don't think it cannot happen yeah. at this point. Especially, I was going to say at this point, at the right things are moving. Yeah. And the research behind it and the clinical trials and the outcomes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's happening. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, as you said, the bike is clicked into gear and it is pedaling. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Erica, this has been absolutely fascinating, which I'm sure most people say when they talk to you about this. Thank you. To learn about this. My area, of course, is hormones, female, male hormones, stress hormones. And so this is a whole area that absolutely is just the coolest to me because if it's another amazing tool with minimal to no side effects that we can use. And I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, we have the mental health crisis in our country. I'm married to somebody who's retired military and just to see his friends and the experience when we go to the VA, the veterans medical system, and that's just one system, like all the systems have a big problem. And so to be, for people to learn about this option, psychedelics is an option, is so helpful. It's so nice. And for a lot of people, they probably listen to this going, never even knew it was an option or strictly thought it was, that's what bad kids did, you know? Right. Now they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, I have a lot of those symptoms or that could fit me, or I would be very open to trying something like that. I'm going to seek that out. Maybe that will help me. I've been treatment resistant to a number of these things, or I am taking an SSRI, or I am on an anti-anxiety and it's not really helping. Like it keeps me at bay, but it's, I can't live my life. And, or like the panic, the panic is the addiction to whatever it is, cigarettes, alcohol, like it's controlling my life and I don't want it to. And talk therapy isn't cutting it. How nice to have this. Yeah. And all of those tools that you listed, the pharmaceutical medication and the talk therapy, if you can introduce a psychedelic experience, it's just catapults the whole process, right? So it doesn't have to be an either or, right? So now, now that being said, some psychedelics you can't combine with antidepressants, some you can. So ketamine, props to ketamine, plays well with others, pretty much everything. But yeah, and as it turns out, people have a right to heal. Mm -hmm. And there's also something called right to try, right? And so this is your one and only precious life. What I say to people is use the tools, use all the tools. Like this is your life. If something isn't working, it doesn't mean you're broken. It just means that that's not the right tool. And there are other tools. And if you can't get your hands on the tools you need, go somewhere else where you can or knock on the right senator's door to help you get the tools that you need because you deserve to want to be here because you are here. So you might as well enjoy it, right? Absolutely. And I say that all the time too, Of it's okay to expand your healthcare team. If you're listening to this and you go ask your primary care, let's say, like, you know, I heard this podcast, I'm interested in ketamine. And maybe your primary care has knows nothing about this, not trained in it, hasn't looked it up. Totally fair. Their primary care, their job is to do acute care stuff day in and day out, learning about ketamine, psilocybin, others. Like that's not maybe what their focus is. Totally okay to keep them as your primary care and expand out your treatment team. Find somebody who does know and is researched in this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sure. And on that note... Another sign of things improving (laughs) is I think that eventually it will be your primary care doctor's job to know about this. A hundred percent. We just aren't there yet. Right now, right? (laughs) We just aren't there yet. And so what I have done is I actually created a series of online courses for healthcare providers. Anyone can take them. You don't have to be a therapist or a doctor. And I explain the science in rudimentary enough terms that anyone can follow them. But 
I created a course called The Science of Psychedelics so that when you go to your doctor and you say, hey, what do you think about this? And they say, I don't know. You can say, hey, why don't you check out this course? And a sign that things are changing is that this course, I actually got it approved through the American Medical Association for continuing medical education credits. Which is massive. Which is a sign, right? And I got it approved for continuing education for nurses, for naturopathic doctors, for therapists. That's a big shift. The Oregon Psychological Association invited me to come and speak to a group of psychologists and psychiatrists about this stuff and gave them all continuing education. So it's shifting. So yeah, to your point, at this point, you might actually know more than your doctors (laughs) do. And it's not because your doctors are dumb, right? It's because this hasn't happened yet. It's happening, right? And it's not always linear in how that occurs. That's the truth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, where can people find you? Where can they learn more from you? Where can they take that course? How can they follow along and get involved? Because you are just a wealth of information. Thank you. Yes, I would love to connect. So Dr. Zelfand, drzelfand.com is my website. Righttoheal.com is a nonprofit. And to take the course, that is called scienceofpsychedelics.com. That's all linked on drzelfan.com as well. You don't have to remember three different URLs, but so if you only remember one, drzelfand. And I'll say my name is not Zeflin. <laughs> Zelfand. Z elf, like a Christmas elf. And like, yes, and <laughs> Zelfan. That's how you find drzelfan. Like a Christmas elf. Well, you are delivering all sorts of presents. Right? (laughs) Yay! This is amazing. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for taking the time today to walk us through all of that. It's such a great, easy to understand level. Like I said, this is a hot, spicy topic, Mm -hmm. but such a needed one. And I just appreciate your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.